All right, so I'm going to read 1 Peter 1, and we'll start in verse 22 and read to 2 3. 1 Peter 1 22. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off. But the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation, if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord." So we'll be looking a little bit closer here, at specifically at verses 22 through 25 uh, this morning. And last week we, we looked at verse 22 uh, fairly in depth, and we looked at some of the aspects of the structure. There's a structure going on, verse 22, really to verse 25, and I'll just repeat it this morning just for, just for uh, a refresher. What Peter is is is. Um, exhorting the believers to is to love one another fervently from the heart. He says that in verse 22. Love one another from the heart. And he has these two surrounding participles around this command to love one another that support or give a warrant or, or the means by which uh, we can love one another. And the first support, he says, is the fact that we've purified our souls. He says we've purified our souls for a sincere love of the brethren. And so the fact that we have now been made pure by Jesus Christ makes us now people that can love. We've been cleansed, and therefore we can love. And the second ground that Peter uses as the reason why we can fervently love one another from the heart is verse 23, and that's where we'll be looking at a little bit this morning, is this reality of the new birth. He says, love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. So, so the reason Peter tells you and me that we not only must, but actually can love one another, that it's actually now a, a feasible reality, is because we have been born again. So Peter assumes that all of his readers that are in Christ have all been born again. It's not like you had this tier of, of people that he's speaking to, you know, just the believers that are sort of nominal and carnal, and then those who are born again sort of jet propelled. No, every believer that he's writing to assumes, and he knows very well, that they have been born again. And Peter's point here is that, is that we as Christians now, because of what God has done in us, have no excuse to not love one another. We have no excuse to hate one another. We have no excuse to despise one another. And live detached from one another. He says, you are new people. You have a new principle at work in you. Through God's spirit. And that's the reality of the new birth. So Peter focuses in on this as the main reason. One of the main reasons that we can love one another. Loving one another is the inevitable fruit of the new birth. Now he begins here in verse 23. 
just to show that he grounds loving one another in the new birth with this terminology of for you have been born again, linking back to the previous command to love one another. So Peter is, again, he's grounding this love for one another in the new birth. Most of you have heard the, the, the teaching or the doctrine of the new birth or what it means to be born again quite a bit, at least here I, I know you have. But we're going to look at it a little bit more. The term itself for born again is, is, is the term that means born again or born from above or that idea of regeneration. The idea, the, the idea is a begetting. It's a, it's a divine begetting. The terminology can be used of, of human reproduction. But here it's talking about a spiritual reproduction. God is bringing about a new child into this world. And that is something that has happened to us if we're in Christ. A new birth has occurred. So let's look at the classic text on this in John chapter 3. The classic text on this in John chapter 3. So I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. So John 3, you're familiar here with the situation. Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews, comes to Jesus at night. Nicodemus is a man at this time in his life who's trying to make sense out of Christ. He's uh, intrigued by Christ. Still, still an unbeliever, I think, because he comes at night. And I think that idea of night is sort of pregnant in John's mind, that he's still in the dark. Um, and yet, you can tell that there's something going on that's deeper than the average Pharisee. And so, whatever words Jesus is going to say to him here, I think probably are going to work in him over the course of Jesus' ministry. And then you see Nicodemus at the end as a man probably of faith who, who is there at his, as, at his uh, resurrection, or as, uh, uh, at his burial. So, Let's read the text. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So he starts off very, very amenable to Jesus. Starts off by evaluating, sort of analyzing who he knows Jesus is or who he thinks Jesus is. And in some ways, sort of wanting to control the discussion. And Jesus won't be controlled, and so he immediately launches into this, to, to, to sort of the heart of the matter. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Sort of a striking statement here. You know, here's Nicodemus, the Bible answer man of the day, uh, one who would be incredibly familiar with the Old Testament, the, the revealed word of God in the Old Testament, and yet Jesus is coming to him right off the gate and not entertaining any of his assessments and just telling him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. If you're not, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. 
Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it is coming from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? This is interesting. He, he still just didn't grasp what Jesus is after. He still just didn't quite grasp the essence of what God is after in all human beings. How can these things be? He didn't recognize his own need of the new birth still. But he's asking questions. Then Jesus answers in verse 10. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. And that's why I say he still was an unbeliever at this time. He still was in this state of unbelief. But there's some things we can learn from John 3 about the new birth. The first thing we see is that it's absolutely vital, right, to see and enter the kingdom. Jesus says it flat out. Unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom. Unless you're born again, you won't enter the kingdom, right? So if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, which will last for all eternity, you must be born again. You must become God's child, or you won't see it or enter it. It's interesting that he doesn't just say enter, but he says you won't see it, you won't perceive it, you won't grasp it, you won't understand it, you won't appreciate what it really is. You'll still, you'll still look at it through religious eyes. You'll still think it's about showing up to a building and doing a certain prayer or a certain responsive reading or, or maybe even giving money or giving alms or those kinds of things. You won't understand that it's essentially about living by the Spirit of God. That's what happens when the new birth occurs. And so it's absolutely vital. It's absolutely vital to enter and see the kingdom, to perceive the kingdom. You must be born again. It's also a sovereign work. Right? Jesus says, the wind blows where it wills. The wind blows where it wills, and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus, Jesus likens people who are born of the Spirit to the effect of wind. You know, we, we can't go outside and, and demand that the wind blow a certain way for us. You know, there's no amount of yelling we can do. It blows where it wills, and that's the way it is with the new birth. I mean, I don't know about it. I mean, for, for me, <laughs> I'm sure it was for you, if you're in Christ. The day before I came to Christ, I didn't know I was coming to Christ the next day, you know? Matter of fact, if you would have seen me the day before I came to Christ, you would think he's the furthest from Christ, you know, hanging out with my friends, smoking a joint, whatever I was doing. But what happened? Well, the next day, the wind blew my way. It's God's work. God came to me and began to arrest me and began to just fill my mind and heart with thoughts of him and his kingdom and started to fill my, my mind with terminology that I'd heard only as a kid in youth group. And then over the next three days that were sort of a blur, um, God sort of sealed the deal and, and, and my heart was just inflamed with love for him. What is that? <laughs> That's the new birth, isn't it? Now, it looks different for different people. But the net effect in the fruit is the same. It's the same. But it's God's sovereign work. And that's why, you know, it's vital that we learn that in order for people to be saved, we must bring to them the word of God. But at the end of the day, 
Jesus can also say, don't cast your pearls, right? Because at the end of the day, we can't make people Christians. <laughs> um, we, we just can't. We can't play enough warm, fuzzy music. We, we can't hype up the energy enough to really bring it home. No, this is a sovereign work of God that he has to affect. You remember Lydia, Paul walks into Philippi. And of course, Paul, he, he walks into a town. He knows the, that that. That God has purposes, and yet, you know, he still wonders what's going to happen here and there, and he goes to a place of prayer, and there are ladies there praying, and as he begins to talk to these ladies about the Word of God and about the Gospel of God, Luke gives us a little insight into the heart of a woman, Lydia. And the text says that, in the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful picture there she is in the midst of other ladies listening to the word of God and her heart closed, not wanting to truly hear the word of God. And all of a sudden, God says, open up. And her heart then takes in the word of God. And what happens? She responds to the things saying by Paul. And after that, she becomes a woman that wants to serve Christ and, and serve the kingdom of God. She, she then perceived the kingdom of God rightly. She saw it, whereas before she didn't see it. This is what the new birth does. This is what it brings. It's God's sovereign work. But the new birth is, is, it brings reality. It brings certain fruit. Just like the wind when you see it blow against the trees, you can see the leaves moving this way and that. You can't see the wind, but you see its effect. That's the same thing with a new birth. You know it when it happens. You see it when it happens. Right? You see it when it happens. You see the fruits. Jesus says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He's saying that, that like produces like. You know, if, if, if you want to harvest oranges, you don't go to an apple tree. If you want to harvest apples, you don't go to an orange tree. Why? Because orange trees produce oranges. Apples trees produce apples. It's very simple illustration, but very profound. And in our natural state, our, our fleshly state, Jesus says, it only yields flesh. It yields only decisions and behavior governed by self and self-love. All manner of goodness and good works, humanly speaking, we can do, but motivated by self-love and not for God's glory. That, that, is the, that is the state of who we are before we know Christ. So flesh yields flesh. But when one is born of the Spirit, this new life of the Spirit yields life of the fruit of the Spirit. Now life is governed by love for God, love for Christ, love for others. It's the Spirit of God who brings this about. See, because the reality is our first birth doesn't help us at all, does it? It doesn't help us at all. We need a new heart, a new nature. You know, I was just looking briefly at just the instances of heart in the Old Testament, and huh, what a bleak picture. I mean, from Genesis chapter 6, you know, the thoughts of the people's hearts were only evil continually. I mean, that's breathtaking, isn't it? It's breathtaking, but that's exactly who we are by nature. By nature, all the thoughts and intentions of our heart are only evil continually. Continually. And God puts up with it every day. What an amazing 
patient God we have. And then in Genesis 8, after the flood, we get a reason as to why God flooded the earth again. He says, for, for man's heart is evil from his youth. Our heart is corrupt. Jesus tells Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know you, you, you need the new birth? You don't know that there's this reality that a heart change needs to happen, that the Spirit of God has to come and create life? Are you a teacher of Israel? You don't understand these things? This is what the Old Testament teaches. Hearts have to change. The hearts are the problems. It's the problem that, that humanity faces. God would appeal over and over to Israel, to their uncircumcised heart as the main problem and the cause of their rebellion. Jeremiah 9, 25 and 26 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised, meaning uncircumcised of heart, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair on their temples. For all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of heart. He takes that ritual of circumcision, sort of the sign of the covenant, and he uses it with regard to your own heart. You've got this old fleshly man that's still there that needs to be done away with. It's the heart. Jeremiah 4.4, God, through Jeremiah, appeals to the people and says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. An uncircumcised heart is a culpable state, isn't it, before God? However you want to rationalize the reality of Adam's sin and his inherited guilt that we end up possessing, the reality is you are evil before God. Right? And your sin betrays that every time you do it. And God says, my wrath comes upon those who are uncircumcised of heart. See, Nicodemus was still operating under the notion that there's some sort of good work, some sort of law righteousness, some sort of ceremonial fidelity that could gain and keep a right standing with God. Jesus doesn't even allow the discussion to continue on that manner. He doesn't even go there. He says, you've got to be born again. Let's put discussions of law to the side and go to the heart of the matter. You've got to be born again. You've got to become new. You have a heart problem that must be rectified if you're going to live for him. One of my professors in college gave this illustration. I thought it was really good. And he says, you know, you can, you can put a fox in a garden surrounded by all manner of, of luscious vegetables and put a fence around it, and he's, it's just him and the vegetables, and this fox will starve to death. And why is that? I mean, there's life everywhere. There's vegetables everywhere. There's this, this lush vegetation everywhere. Why will he starve? Well, because it's his nature to eat meat, right? So how are you going to get him to live? <laughs> well, you got to turn him into a rabbit. You turn him into a rabbit, and then he begins to just, he begins to feast, and that's the reality. That's the reality of the new birth. The reality is that before you are in Christ, you do not understand the kingdom. You don't understand what, why, why we're talking and, and glory in Jesus like we do. You don't understand why our burden is for a lost and dying world that's perishing. You don't grasp any of that. You've got to be changed. 
and to someone who lives and thinks and loves like Jesus Christ. And that's only something that God the Spirit can do in you. And He can do it in you. He does it for every Christian. You have a nature that is bound in sin that must be broken. And so, in other, Peter, back to Peter, Peter is saying, look, I'm not asking you to love one another as mere men and women, okay? I'm not, I'm not adding sort of a rule to, to your day. I'm telling you you're new people. I'm telling you that you're people with a new nature. I'm telling you you're people now indwelt by the Spirit of God who, who can and must love one another. You have every resource under heaven and in heaven now to love one another. You have every ability now, by the Spirit of God, by the grace of God, to love one another. Gosh, this is just so important. When you, when you, when you think about an individual that's hard for you to love, I'm sure you've got one or 20. Okay. When you're thinking about how in the world am I going to do it, what do you think about? Well, sometimes for me in my fleshy moments, I'll think, well, I just... Try not to go around them as much. Right? When I should be thinking, wait a minute, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm not the old Chris. I, I, don't, I don't go around holding grudges. I, I don't go around hating one another. This is my family. And I'm born again. God has given me a new engine. Right? He, he's, he's filled me with his spirit, and, and now if, if I seek the Lord and call on him, he can, by his spirit, empower me to love. Now that is a miracle, and that is power. That is absolute power. You know, as Christians, oftentimes, especially in charismatic circles, we see demonstrations of miracles and, and you know, in, in physical healings as signs of power. And, and while some of them may be, that ain't nothing compared to a church of people who love one another and work out their issues and forbear with one another in love for the sake of unity and for the sake of their reputation for the gospel. That is power, and that's rare. You know, you don't see it very often. But you can because you're born again. You're not the same person. You have new resources. The Spirit can bring forth spiritual realities. It's just whether or not we'll actually trust God to call on Him to affect those realities within us. So easy we get into these fleshly ideas of He'll never change, or I'll never change, or this will never work, or that won't. All of that stuff, it's because we're relying on our own intellect. That verse that Debbie quoted, some put their trust in chariots and horses and armies and strategies. We don't do that. Why? Because we know God. He is for us. Gosh, how many times can he tell us to call on him? How many times can he tell us that, that, that you are not mere men? That's what Paul told the Corinthians. Are you not acting like mere men? You're not mere men and women. You have the spirit of the living God in you. And you're born again. Oh, we have every reason to love one another. Born again. 
And he says that we're born again by seed imperishable. By seed that's imperishable. Why does he use the term seed here? The term itself can be traced from the beginning pages of Genesis with regard to trees and fruit-bearing plants that yield seed. And you remember the term is then picked up in Genesis 3 with regard to the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and, and the idea of, 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 of the woman's lineage and the serpent's descendants. And the seed of the woman crushing the head of the serpent and the serpent and the seed of the serpent bruising the head of the woman. I'm sorry. The seed of the woman bruising the head of the serpent and the seed of the serpent bruising the heel of the seed of the woman. So the idea there is it's not just physical descendants. It's a spiritual reality, a spiritual descendants, a spiritual lineage. It's not that the serpent has some sort of biological children, but it's the spiritual reality. Of course, the seed of the woman ultimately refers to Jesus and to all those in the line of Christ after the Spirit. And then the idea of seed continuing through Genesis becomes even more filled out when the Abrahamic covenant comes on the scene where Abraham's descendants are comprised of the nations who were blessed by God's promise. Of course, this promise is fulfilled in the new covenant with Jesus being the promised seed of Abraham and all those who trust in him becoming Abraham's seed and children of promise by the Spirit through faith. But there's this, also this idea in the Old Testament of the seed being the sort of male contribution to the reproductive process as that which begets children and brings about conception. The idea is that the male's contribution brings about a progeny or a lineage or a seed of children after the father. This idea of seed mixed with the spiritual descendants of Eve and Abraham are are probably in the back of Peter's mind as he considers the whole concept of the new birth and and the divine begetting that that brings us about. But I think that the the lineage idea of seed or the descendants idea of seed is not the primary focus. I think Peter is giving special attention to the idea of seed here as that which is the means of this divine begetting. So it might be closer to the, to the sort of the idea of the male contribution to the reproductive process. I think Peter is talking about this seed is that which has brought us to new birth, that has brought us into new life. So while seed as lineage or descendant may be sort of in the back of Peter's mind, I think Peter's focus is on the idea of seed, which is, um, which is that which brings about new birth. The spiritual phenomenon where God's seed is implanted in a person. So he says, you've been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. So this seed is, is, is the means by which God brings about this new birth. Now in the New Testament... Nine times out of ten, 
the term seed is in context of farming, agriculture, those kinds of things. The effort of sowing seeds to bring forth fruit and a crop for produce. I mean, you're probably already thinking of the Gospels where Jesus is mentioning sowing seed. The idea is taking some seed like corn or whatever, whatever seed, mustard seed or whatever else was common in the ancient world and throwing it out into freshly tilled soil and there's the hope that you'll see a crop later that year. Because Jesus was living in a highly agrarian culture, Jesus uses this language and the sowing metaphor for the sowing and the scattering of the word of God in Matthew 13. You remember the one that sort of sticks out in your mind, probably stuck out in mind, was the sower. The sower, Jesus himself, goes out to sow, and he goes out to sow the seeds of the word of God. He sows some beside the road, and some on the rocky ground, some among thorns, and some in good soil. And those who hear in good soil persevere. And they bring forth fruit, inevitably. So what is the seed in this context? Well, the seed in this context in Matthew 13 is the word of God. And of course, the different soils are the different states of people's hearts who hear the word. So here Peter is saying that the means by which we've been born again, I think alluding to Jesus' usage, is the word of God. And Peter just flat out says it, doesn't he? Born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. All right, so... I know that may have been a little tedious. But Peter has this notion about the word of God that's vital for the new birth, which in turn becomes vital for his point to love one another. They all sort of work together. The word of God is God's means by which and the seed that Peter is alluding to that brings forth this new birth. And he uses the, the, this, this adjective of imperishable. Perishable versus imperishable. Because the idea is that this word that has been sown in us will last forever. It will last and endure forever. In terms of its ability in us to bear fruit. Now track with me here. He says it. You've been born of imperishable seed. It will never shrivel up and die. You know, you're thinking of the analogy of, of, of crops again and farming. If certain insects or fungus come and attack the crop, then they'll no longer produce fruit. That's perishable, isn't it? It's subject to death and will pass away, but not so with the seed of the Word of God. This will not happen. It's the seed God Himself has sown into our hearts. In 1 John, John can say that the one who is born of God does not sin because God's seed abides in him. He uses this, this idea that God has put something in us that will not die, and therefore we will not die. And therefore, it will so work effectively in us that we will not sin. Now, sorry, it certainly doesn't mean sinless perfection, but he does mean that the mark of our life will be toward righteousness. In other words, God's seed is a source of power and life such that it keeps us on paths 
of righteousness for God's sake. He also says that he also says that the one who is born of God overcomes the world. It's amazing. God has given us this new birth that will keep us from finally succumbing to worldliness. And there's a sense in which we can, we can just, we can rest a little bit just in the reality that we know that God is at work in us, brethren. You know, we, we fret sometimes, you know, or are we going to make it? <laughs> but the reality is we will make it. Why? Because God has put his seed within us. He's, he's, he's put his spirit within us and his spirit within us will bring us home. His spirit within us will continue. I mean, think about, how, think about what gift it is if the spirit is grieved. Let's say you do something, you blow it, and the spirit is grieved. What a gift that is, right? What a gift it is that you've got someone so near and dear to you that's going to be sad and maybe even angry sometimes if we blow it. He, he's telling us this. What a gift he is. The spirit of God that God has given us can be grieved. But that's such a gift, right? Because then we're going to be grieved and make changes. This is all mysterious, but real. He's put in us his word. He's put in us his spirit. We're born of imperishable seed. And he says it's explicitly here, it's through the living and enduring word of God. Here's explicitly what Peter means by seed. It's the word of God. It's living and enduring. That is, it's imperishable. The word of God brings forth life. And we, we can learn from a few verses later what word exactly he's thinking of here, but certainly expands to the whole word of God. But he says in verse 25 at the end there, and this is the word which was preached to you. This word that has brought about new birth was the word that was preached to the people. So I would think that first this word has to do with the gospel. It has to do with the cross and the message of the cross and the resurrection that the apostles in the early church preached to bring about conversion in the cities throughout Rome and, and the surrounding areas. Peter says it's this word that we preached that brought about new birth. So the reality is, is that the word of God in the gospel is the means by which God brings about life. We must preach this word. We must never be ashamed of this word, of this gospel. It is God's power to save. We must never judge by outward signs of success and numbers as to the effectiveness of our preaching. We must trust the Lord that as we sow the seed of the gospel, God will bring forth life and harvest. But we do need to be clear that this is the only way people will be born again. That is the only way people will be born again. Certainly God can prompt with dreams and these sorts of things, but at the end of the day, they will, he will also, in, 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 in the wake of that, bring messengers to bring that gospel. Listen to these statements that Paul makes. 1 Thessalonians 2, 15 through 16, talking about the Jews who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men. Well, how are they hostile to all men? Think of that. They're hostile to all men. What's the most hostile thing you can do to an individual? Well, he says it. Hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. That's hostility. 
The most hostile thing you can do is to be a, to, 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 to short circuit and to, to be an obstacle to the word of God coming to a people. Hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. With the result that they, the Jews, always fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. That's God's perspective of the Jewish nation as a whole. Wrath. The first persecutors of the church. The ones that were the first obstructors of the gospel. And the ones that will one day be judged fully by the wrath of God. But speaking the word of the gospel is the only way for people to be saved. Of course, you remember Romans 10. Paul says, how will they call on the Lord unless they believe? And how will they believe unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone preaches? And how will they preach unless someone is sent? Right? We go to Renewal. We go to Miracle Hill. We go downtown. We go from door to door. Why? Because we don't bring forth life, but we can bring forth that which does bring forth life, which is the gospel. That's what we have. We're entrusted with it. So much so that Paul can say, I'm in debt to everybody because I have this gospel. I owe everybody this this remedy for death because I have it and they don't. And we have it. When we share the gospel, we are spelling out to human beings the truth of God, of of what the truth of God is regarding Jesus Christ so that people may hear, believe, call on the Lord and be saved. When Jesus gives his parable of the sower and the seeds, he says that this is what the kingdom is like. And he actually gives a couple parables with, with, with sowing seed and scattering seed and the mystery of God's work after that seed is scattered in several parables. But just listen to this one. And he was saying the kingdom of God is like. Now, I, I just want us to just, I want us to just think just for a second on the reality that if we're going to be a part of the kingdom of God, this is what it's like. So in other words, you should be able to say of our church, our church is like this. What is our church? What, is, what should it be like? Well, it should be like a man who casts seed upon the soil. That's what our church should be like. Our church should be a place where we are scattering seed all the time. Scattering seed, DVDs, tracks, words over the, at, the, at the coffee station, you know, words at the counter here and there, words at the swim meet, whatever it is. Scattering seed. That's what the kingdom of God is like. That's what the, that's what the people in the kingdom are like. That's what they do. They scatter seed. But we'd all, we should also be people knowing that the results are up to the Lord. He says, the kingdom of God is like a man who casts seed upon the soil. He goes to bed at night and gets up by day and the seed sprouts and grows. How? He himself does not know. So we go scattering seed, not judging the effectiveness of our scattering based on initial responses. Of course, we want them to. But at the end of the day, we can go to sleep knowing that God will bring forth life. 
The soil produces crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, then the mature grain in the head. But when the crop permits, he immediately puts in the sickle because, because the, the harvest has come. And he said, or because the harvest has come. And then he gives another one. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God or by what parable shall we present it? It is like a mustard seed, which, which sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so the birds of the air can nest under its shade. Again, hear that seed metaphor. But it's, it's interesting because when you plant a seed and you grow a plant, that plant has lots of seeds and those seeds plant and then those seeds grow and they plant. And that's... That's this reality, this multiplication process that happens with seeds that are sown. So much so that a small little mustard seed can end up producing a tree so big that animals can come and nest under its shade. And I think that's also the idea of what Peter has under here. When he says that the word of God is living, it has this dynamic power to it to work in us to go scatter and then to work in others to go scatter. And therefore, just the kingdom grows this way. It moves in us. It moves us out. It moves us, it, it moves us away from being ingrown. It just moves us out to multiply and to, and to sow the seed of the Word of God. And in Jesus' parables, certainly the first man scattering seed was Jesus himself, but Jesus isn't here anymore. And so it's us. Certainly he's still at at work through us, so it's still his ministry. And yet, we are his co-laborers, aren't we? Peter calls this word the living and enduring word of God. It's it's life-giving. And it not only brings forth life initially, but it continues to work in us and convict us and exhort us and remind us of the gospel. And it will do this forever. It's imperishable. Remember, it's imperishable. We have this, we have this change that has taken place, the spirit that's taken place, and his word that has come into us, empowered by the spirit now, that will, that will continue to renew us forever. It's living, living and active So Peter says this word that brought about new birth did just that, but he's going to now sort of lead into this reality that we have the power to love one another by our new birth through the word. And it's paying attention to the word of God continually that will continue to help us to love. And I'm going to stop there before I get into, before I dive any deeper into this. But just suffice it to say at this point that, that we, have, we have the power now by being new creatures in Christ to love one another. So it doesn't, it's not relying on you and, you, and, and, and your, your, your native strength because you don't have any. Paul says there's nothing good that dwells in me that is in my flesh. And he's right. But let that move you to look outside of yourself to your source of strength. Let that move you to not give up but to look at the one who can give you life and strength and power. But also, I want us to really grasp, and we'll grasp it more next week, the importance of the Word of God. 
the importance of it for life, the importance of it to, to stir you up and cause you to continue to love one another. You, can't, you don't ever get past bringing the Word of God before your eyes. You know, it's, not like you, it's not like you graduate out of needing the Scriptures. Um, and Peter will go on to say it, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the Word. He's going to say it. Why? Because it's, it's, it's as, we're, as we're renewing our minds, we'll put aside malice, put aside deceit, all those things, and love one another. That's his, his thing, is loving one another. And you know what the reality is, New Covenant? We do, we do love one another. We really do. The Lord has given us uh, so much grace in this area. We certainly have to excel still more because we can lose it. We can lose it. But he has given it to us. I see it. I've seen it over the years. And I see it, I see it stable. I see it, I see it strong. Um, whenever I hear of people having other people over, and you know, sometimes, and I'm sure this goes through Steve's mind, when I don't talk with certain people for a long time, I get worried. And sometimes I can start to think that it's me that has to make them this or that. And certainly I'm a part of that, but oftentimes the Lord will allow me to engage with that person very shortly after I'm having these thoughts. And they'll just have some incidental discussions with me about how they've been hanging out with this person and this person and this person and this person. And I'm just like, it's just so awesome. It's just the Lord at work. It's, it's his seed that abides in you, not mine. <laughs> it's his power. It's his work. It's, it's, it's his agenda. And I'm just so thankful for that. This is on him. So, anyway, but we have to excel. We have to be fervent. And, um, and we can lose that. We can lose that fervency. So, let's pray again to this end. And, um, um, and pray that the Lord will help us to continually value His Word. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You so much, Lord, for Your grace. And... Uh, Lord, we pray that you'd help us to love one another fervently from the heart, uh, knowing that we've been born again. And Lord, that these texts that at first seem somewhat obscure, Lord, would just become clearer and clearer as to their, as to their, um, to, as to their point and as to their impact in our lives. And Lord, I just pray for, for those who don't know you in here, who still may, may be like Nicodemus, wondering at how... Uh, Jesus can be saying the things that he's saying about the new birth, Lord, that you would, you would speak life to them, that you would implant your seed into their hearts that would renew them, change them, transform them. And we pray all this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.